Hello, hello, lovely listeners. All of you ghouls and goblins. And everything in between. Welcome to Across the Veil with Zelda and Emma. Oh my goodness. So we did all these episodes live, as you guys probably know. Probably know. I honestly kind of feel like Taylor Swift because she's doing all of her re-recordings of old things. (laughs) I mean, it's not like eight years ago old, but it is like a few weeks ago old. You probably forgot anyways from the time that we recorded to now. You don't know. You don't know what it was about. I don't know what I did all day yesterday, you know? Time, it's an illusion. I don't believe in it. Time was created by the man, TM. (laughs) The man. The man. But we do have live versions of these episodes on the Bullhorn app, if you're curious about those. If you want to know how they went or hear some of the phone calls that we took, uh, you have that option. Yes, we do have some really fun, really fun phone calls. Uh, my grandmother guested on one and talked about the Fresno Nightcrawlers. Your dad was drunk at a garden party. My dad popped up. Yep, drunk at a garden party. Uh, good stuff all around, pretty much. A good time. A very good time. But we're re-recording it, so those of you who missed the live can listen to it. And those of you who didn't miss the live, thank you very much, can listen to it again and get to hear some spooky sound effects and some little extra details and stories we added in. So Yeah, there's uh, secrets in this one. We've got some really spooky things going on. Yeah, this is one of our, our scary ones. And you know it because I'm the one who's doing it. Yeah, that's kind of how this ends up working. It really is. Zelda's like, here's the fun stuff. And I'm like, here's demonic possession. So yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Demonic possession. So hopefully you guys have listened to our collaboration with Riddle Me That, which is a true crime podcast that you guys should definitely be listening to, where we discussed one of my favorite movies, The Exorcist. Yeah, honestly, for a movie that was made in the early 70s, it's one of the freakiest movies I've ever seen. Just the spinal tap scene made me super yeah. queasy. And I, I can do medical stuff because I watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. It's not the same. It's scarier and it's it's harsher. Grosser. Grosser, yeah. But so those of you who have seen the movie may know that it was based on a true story. The Exorcism of Roland Doe. So William Blatty, the author of both the book The Exorcist, which I have read. Good book. Weird flicks. <laughs> yeah. And he was also the producer and screenwriter of the movie. Uh, He read an article in the newspaper that claimed that a boy in Maryland was possessed in the 1940s, treated at Georgetown, and pretty much followed the events of Reagan's possession in the movie, aside from a few details, like the ending and heads being fully turned around. Mm -hmm. Honestly, telling you too much about that case might ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it, so I'm not gonna, I I won't spoil anything. But it's a very famous case of demonic possession. But here's the kicker. Turns out it's almost definitely not true. (laughs) Or at least not entirely true and 100% embellished. Wow, Hollywood taking a story and embellishing it. That's a first. I know, that never happens. Never happens. crazy, right? Whoa. The conjuring is totally real. 100%, that's what I heard. (laughs) So as you lovely listeners may know, I'm quite the skeptic. What? You? I know. But so a lot of my research for the podcast is like, blah, blah, blah. Is it real? So of course I googled, was Roland Doe real? 
And I found an article written by a paranormal researcher in, I believe, the 90s it was written. And he read all of the newspaper articles and journals written about Roland, who was also sometimes called Robbie, uh, about his possession and found a lot of conflicting information. And so then he interviewed a ton of people related to the case. And it turns out not only was Roland treated in St. Louis and not Georgetown, but most of the people had the general consensus that he wasn't truly possessed, rather just a rebellious, probably mentally ill teenage boy. So it just wasn't real. He was just probably a fucked up kid. Uh -huh. But doing that research and doing the podcast got me super interested in the history of demonic possession. And also... I keep watching the Lil Nas X video. Uh-huh. It slaps. Like, it goes hard. Call me when you want. Tell me Call me in the morning. I'll be on the way. So devil is on my mind. Yeah, devil's always on my mind. And ironically, even though I'm super not religious, demonic possession scares me more than, like, just about anything. I straight up used to not be able to watch any possession movie. I mean, now I'm jaded and most movies don't really scare me. So, but, like, honestly... The idea of an evil entity, whether it's like a traditional demon or just anything like that, entering my body and making me do awful things like scuttle around on walls is horrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, you doing evil things and scuttling is just kind of you after a few too many gin and tonics, though. I do like to scuttle after gin and tonics. I think you're already more demon than you think you are, is what I'm saying. Chaos reigns. Chaos reigns. <laughs> But, you know, me being me, if I'm scared of it, I have to know more about it and see if there's anything that can convince me that possession is real. So today, I'm going to give you a little background on possession, as well as a story that I find the most convincing. Also, as a personal note, there is like a whole thing where people have like supernatural things happen to them while they do something involving talking about demons. So while I was doing the research, I was on high alert for anything strange and... While I didn't have any like weird experiences originally during the research, I recently did have a really awful demon dream. Oh my god. It was horrific. First I dreamt a story about possession and then I dreamed it into a new dream where I got possessed and then my sister got possessed and I had to exercise her. I woke up very scared and slept with the lights on for the rest of the night. Oh my goodness, that's horrifying. It was awful. I've also been hearing like really weird footsteps at 4am but like... That's neither here nor there. Anywho, yeah. let's talk about exorcisms. Hopefully I don't get any more nightmares. No nightmares. Broadly speaking, exorcism signifies freeing a place, person, or object from some sort of negative spiritual influence. Wait, I just, this might be the world's stupidest question. If <laughs> demons can possess you, can angels also possess you? From what I read, it's, I don't think angels can possess you because in this case, at least, it's referring to negative things, a bad spiritual influence. So if a good spiritual influence possesses you, that's like, okay? Like supernatural. We're just gonna let them do what they're gonna do? I think they're like, that's fine. That's a double standard. <laughs> it kind of is, but Catholicism's gonna do what Catholicism's gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> Demonic possession has been reported in many, many different cultures. There is Christianity, of course, but there's also Judaism, Islamic, and even Buddhism. Oh. It's pretty controversial though, wherever you go, and there is a wide spectrum of belief in both exorcism and if demonic entities are even real within all sects of religion. And possessions vary throughout religions as well. In Judaism, a person isn't possessed by a demon, but rather a dibuk, which is a malicious spirit thought to be the dislocated soul of a dead person. 
Sometimes it's not even a person that's possessed, but rather an object or house that's infested with demonic spirits, which is aptly called an infestation. But today I'm going to talk about the type of possession and exorcism featured in The Exorcist, our good old problematic Catholic demonic possession. Firstly, in Catholicism, possession is when demons, or even Satan himself, takes full possession of a person's body without their consent. Side note, a person can consent to possession, but that's called subjection rather than possession. Ooh. The possession is usually a result of the person's actions that led to an increased susceptibility to Satan's influence. For example, Reagan playing with the Ouija board. Also, we love victim blaming. Gotta love it. So let's start with how to recognize a possessed individual. One of today's leading experts on demonic possession is Dr. Richard Gallagher an Ivy League-educated, board-certified psychiatrist and professor who works with priests on exorcisms. He's an interesting figure, since he calls himself a man of science, who was originally a skeptic, but says that he's seen enough evidence to convince him that possession is very real. He says possessions must have certain symptoms that can't be explained by science. Quote, A possessed individual may suddenly, in a type of trance, voice statements of astonishing venom and contempt for religion, while understanding and speaking various foreign languages previously unknown to them. He or she might demonstrate hidden knowledge of all sorts of things, like how a stranger's loved ones died. The subject might also exhibit enormous strength, or even the extraordinarily rare phenomenon of levitation. Though, low-key, he hasn't witnessed the levitation himself. Mm -hmm. But he does say that the people he works with swear that they've seen it over the course of their exorcisms. So, word of mouth. Classic. Classic. But this pretty much aligns with the Roman ritual signs of possession that have been characterized since the Middle Ages, like manifestation of superhuman strengths or supernatural abilities, speaking in tongues, so the same thing, fancier language. Other signs may include a change in voice, contortions, inability to enter a church, all the exorcism classics. So if you see something, say something. <laughs> Watch out for your friends. Are your friends possessed? Check in on them. Yes. If I was a demon, I think I would do fun pranks. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, wall climbing is scary as hell. But imagine if I was a demon possessing a little boy wearing Spider-Man pajamas and then just making him be Spider-Man. That would be amazing. Instant comedy. Instant comedy. That's like a kind demon being like, I'm gonna let you live your dream, little spider boy. Yeah, kindness demon. Well, maybe that's what angels do. Oh, shit. What happens during an exorcism? I'm going to start with the technical side before going into an alleged true story to give you a sense of what a Catholic exorcist does to cast out a demon. These exorcisms are all about invoking a higher authority to compel the spirit. So often, Catholic exorcisms are performed in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's that higher power that casts out the spirit rather than the priest. Nevertheless, you still do need a specially trained and ordained priest to perform a formal exorcism. So basically, these priests are tattling to Jesus. Yes. They're like, Jesus, there's a demon and a human. He shouldn't be there. He's like, okay, leave. Gotta cast out this fuckwit now. Jesus Christ. I mean, oh, me. No, <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, my dad. Firstly, since the Middle Ages to this day, it's believed that true cases of possession are extremely rare, and there are tight regulations in place to ensure that the possession is real. 
To qualify for an exorcism, a person first has to see medical professionals to determine that there is no physical or natural reason for their behavior. People asking for exorcisms are often mentally ill or physically weak, so it's really important to not cause more harm than good. The Catholic rite for a formal exorcism, called major exorcism, is from the Roman ritual, which lists the guidelines that qualifies the person, which are the symptoms I've already mentioned. Apparently, what actually happens during an exorcism kind of varies from priest to priest, since the ritual manual doesn't actually specify what to do. Like, there's not a step-by-step -step process but there are a few necessary requirements. Each priest has their own little flavor. They've got their own spice that they like to throw in. Like, this is my brand. Imagine being the, the Gordon Ramsay of exorcists. <laughs> Just telling the demon, you're an idiot sandwich. That's too much fucking salt. <laughs> too much salt. According to articles I read by trained exorcists, an exorcism should be performed in a chapel or something of the like, and a crucifix and the image of the Virgin Mary should be prominent. It must begin with the Latin words for behold the cross of the Lord, while the priest places a strip of his stole on the neck of the possessed and his right hand on their head. Then you can recite all sorts of prayers, whatever your heart desires, and use any type of religious materials while invoking God, Jesus Christ, and often the Archangel Michael. The priest will also often ask the demons for their names to gauge how difficult they are to defeat. And the name also weakens the demon's power. If the demon doesn't lie, it's a good sign, and the person may be liberated soon. Eventually, the exorcist will command the evil to, in the name of Jesus, return to the eternal inferno. Some exorcisms are easier, some are far more difficult, and it can take weeks or months to cast out the spirits. Eternal Inferno, good band name. Good band name. Great band name. So that brings us to the story. So the story I'm going to tell you is one of those that took a long, long time. Like Roland Doe, it also inspired The Exorcist, just to a lesser degree. But I find it far more credible than the other. Ooh. The Possession of Anna Eklund. It's considered to be the most documented case of demonic possession in the 20th century. You may have heard of Anna Eklund before, since there's a whole fucking movie about her, although the movie has a 2 out of 10 star rating on IMDb, so maybe skip it. Not recommended. Just watch The Exorcist. What you might not know, though, is that her real name is Emma H. Schmidt, and as my name is Emma H. Ragsdale, I find that funny, and I'm gonna call her Emma. Also, it's her real name, but that's secondary to it also being my name. And I can't just, like, call her Schmidt, because then I think about Schmidt from New Girl, and that's just gonna fuck up my storytelling, thinking about him crawling around. Oh, God, that- something is possessing that guy. I don't know what <laughs> demon, but there's something. Uh, if you're wondering what Emma looks like, there are no photos of her, because the church apparently likes to keep exorcisms on the down low. So, while I tell the story, feel free to picture whoever you want, even Schmidt from New Girl. Or me, if you really want to scare yourself, that's up to you. Now, Emma hits all of the possession requirements, and I haven't found a true source that debunks the report, though of course I have my own thoughts that I'll get to later. So here is the possession of Emma. Emma was an American woman in the early 20th century whose alleged demonic possession lasted for decades, from the age of 14 up until she was 46, and required multiple exorcisms. Emma Schmidt was born on March 23, 1882, to German immigrant parents. While it's hard to verify her childhood, it's believed that her mother was Catholic and died around 1890, leaving Emma in the clutches of her alcoholic and abusive father, Jacob. Despite Emma being a devout Catholic herself, 
at the age of 14, something strange started to happen. Emma reportedly found herself unable to enter a church without violent thoughts entering her mind, and the feeling that she was being held back by an interior hidden power. She was repulsed by consecrated objects and consumed by disturbing thoughts, such as harming the priests. Some reports say she began to take part in, quote, unspeakable acts. Whatever that means. I'm assuming it's slut-shaming. Gross. Yeah. Gross. Eventually, her torment caught the attention of her father and a local church who decided she needed an exorcism. In 1912, priest Theophilius Reisinger was called upon to perform the first exorcism on Emma. The exorcism seemed to work, and even kick-started Reisinger's career as an exorcist, but not for long. Some accounts say that the true source of Emma's possession at that time was actually her aunt Mina, the purported lover of Emma's father, and a supposed witch who was practicing black magic, possibly on Emma. But there is another reason for her behavior that's much darker and more realistic, that Emma's father was sexually abusing her, and when she fought back, he forced her to get an exorcism to save his own ass and hurt her. Ugh. Yeah, we don't know for sure but all accounts agree that exorcism was not the end of Emma's story. The worst was yet to come. In 1928, Father Reisinger, who was now famous for performing 19 other successful exorcisms, was contacted by an old friend, Father Steiger. He told Reisinger that he needed to perform another exorcism on Emma. She claimed that in the decades since her first exorcism, she had been tormented by the spirits of her horrible father and aunt, who were ushering demonic forces into her body and mind. Once again, she couldn't take communion or even say the name of Christ, and whispering voices followed her wherever she went. When doctors examined her, they found nothing mentally or physically abnormal. So after approval from a bishop, Reisinger agreed to perform the second exorcism, but this time in secret at the secluded convent of the Franciscan Sisters in Erling, Iowa, hoping to keep Emma as anonymous and far away from people as possible. Only the nuns, Reisinger, Steiger, and the housekeeper were present. Over the course of about four months, three exorcism sessions would take place. Oh God, poor girl. I know. On August 17th, 1928, Emma was taken to the convent. She states that she was almost immediately filled with rage, wanting to attack the nuns and rip them apart. She refused all food and water, knowing it had been blessed, and instead just sat in her room, purring like an animal. Father Reisinger arrived the next day and immediately began the first session, which would last until August 26. He bound Emma to an iron bed and asked strong-armed nuns to stand by in case she needed to be held down. Everything I read, like, very specifically mentioned how strong these nuns were. Like, they were, like, bodybuilder buff-ass nuns. Oh my god, buff nuns. Another great band name. That's an even better band name, honestly. It's a great band name. I'd listen to the buff nuns. As Father Reisinger spoke the opening rites, Emma fell into a comatose state. Her eyes shut tight. But the second he began the rite of exorcism, Emma allegedly ripped through her restraints, levitated to the ceiling, and landed above the room's door, clinging to the wall with a cat-like grip. She hung from the doorframe until nuns managed to force Emma back down to the bed and restrain her. That's when Emma began to howl. It was an inhuman, deafening shriek, and it didn't stop until Reisinger commanded her to be quiet. But she didn't stay quiet. Instead, she began to speak in a high-pitched demonic voice. 
Over the next two sessions, the second occurring September 13th through September 20th, and the third from December 15th through December 23rd, while Reisinger and his helpers prayed over her constantly, Emma's behavior became increasingly violent and disturbed. She continued to mock and jeer at the priests and nuns, spouting information she had no way of knowing. Emma spoke in tongues, answering Reisinger's questions in English, German, and Latin. The Loki jacked nuns were constantly tasked with wrestling her down, and when not restrained, Emma would crawl up the walls and stare down at the nuns and priests from the corner of the ceiling. Despite never eating more than small amounts of milk and water, she would continuously vomit up seemingly impossible amounts of what appeared to be rancid chewed tobacco leaves and other foul debris mixed with bile. Emma's skin sizzled when hit by holy water. She recoiled and cried out when the father approached with a concealed true cross. She hissed like a cat, bellowed, screeched, and emitted noxious smells and excrement. The exorcism was so grueling on Emma's body that she began to physically change. She would contort and writhe around. Her body would contract and expand. Her head and lips swelled. She became so distorted that Reisinger had to stop the nuns from giving Emma her last rites as they feared she would burst. All the while, Father Reisinger would pray. The nuns would take shifts helping the father, as being around Emma for too long was mentally draining. It was a constant battle between the exorcist and demons, sometimes physically, but often verbally. Even when he wasn't currently exercising Emma, Reisinger couldn't sleep without hearing voices whispering in his ears. Emma claimed to be possessed by multiple entities, including Beelzebub, Judas, and the spirits of her father and aunt, saying that the first exorcism failed because the duo had poisoned her food with cursed spices. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. Oh shit. Cinnamon cursed spice. As time went by, her behavior became so disturbing that several nuns asked to be relocated. Even the townspeople began to notice the strange smells and sounds coming from the convent, despite it being miles away. Only Father Reisinger could withstand the constant barrage. But by the third session, even he was exhausted. Finally, on the last day of the exorcism, December 23rd, Father Reisinger commanded the demons, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, through the intercession of the Virgin Mary to depart to hell. At that point, Emma allegedly stood up from her bed and screamed, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Nina, hell, 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 praised be Jesus Christ. It was the first time in all of the sessions that she had spoken with her own voice. After 23 days of being exercised in total, the exorcism was successful. Free from 40 years of torture, Emma went on to live a relatively peaceful life. Holy shit! I did not expect that story to have a happy ending. It's pretty unlikely, you'd think. It's like yeah. right before Christmas, too. December 23rd? Yeah, Merry fucking Christmas to her. Merry fucking Christmas! Here's your gift. No more demons. Damn. Good for her. But I will say, though, apparently she did suffer from a few mild possessions until her death. I huh. don't really know what that means, but it was nothing that, like, required another exorcism. So, yeah, happy ending. But, like, she was still suffering a little, but... Like, just, like, residual demon shit, I guess. Damn. Okay, girl. Yeah, poor Emma. Although her exorcism was meant to stay under wraps, clearly it did not, as I'm talking about her right now. 
Reverend Carl Vogel gathered eyewitness accounts of the exorcism and published a 48-page pamphlet in 1935 entitled Begone Satan, which is where she gets her pseudonym Anna Eklund from. Time Magazine also wrote an article about the exorcism of Emma Schmidt, and Breisinger even has a biography published about him. Other eyewitnesses, such as the housekeeper, swear that it's true. Still, it is super possible that it's not true. Although she supposedly met with doctors in her early years of possession and was found to be normal, early 1900s mental health was pretty misunderstood. Some people say that Emma Schmidt never even existed, as there was so much secrecy surrounding her identity. However, I did read that there are papal records confirming that there were indeed three exorcisms in the same place at the same time, though I can't find papal records online. What do you mean they didn't digitize them? <laughs> You'd think. Hmm. And experts do agree, although who knows how unbiased they are, that due to the eyewitness accounts and the attempted secrecy by the church, that it is a true documented case of demonic possession in the U.S. But I mean, ultimately, it is really hard for me to believe. So many cases of possessions have been debunked, and people can do, like, a lot of weird shit. Like, I was gonna do this episode on the Loudon Ursuline nun possessions from the 1600s, which was basically when a bunch of nuns started acting possessed as hell and blamed a priest for it, and he ended up getting burned at the stake. Uh, and they said that he seduced them into signing the Black Book. So it was like an epidemic of nun possessions. But it was so easily explainable that it just wasn't across the veil enough for me. Because, like, Pretty much, the nuns were bored as hell because there had recently been an outbreak of the bubonic plague near their village and they were in quarantine. So they were just bored in quarantine. Uh, <laughs> bored in quarantine. Wow. I get Pandemic along. vibes. Pandemic vibes. Let's get crazy and blame a priest. Mm -hmm. We all get bored sometimes. Gaslight. Gatekeep. Girl boss. <laughs> Loot on nuns. <laughs> There was also, like, a lot of political stuff involving the Catholic Church wanting to get more power in Loudon. And, like, slut-shaming. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Plus, if someone is already biased towards religious beliefs and they're experiencing psychosis and are knowledgeable about possession, they may believe that they're possessed and not get the care that they need. There are also not many videos showing supernatural occurrences. While there's the Annalise Michelle recordings, the human voice can do some pretty scary things. Like, those recordings really do scare the fucking shit out of me, like, Jesus Christ. I've considered doing an episode about her, but, like, I feel like I would have to put the audio of those recordings in the episode, and I don't want to subject anyone who doesn't want to hear that to it. And, like, I have to do, like, listener discretion advice thing. And Just watch the BuzzFeed Unsolved video about Annalise Michelle, honestly. Ryan will tell the story like I would, and Shane will be skeptical like I am. He'll get the full thing. But that's, like, the only really, like, scary thing that I've found online about possessions. That's been recorded. Yeah. And voice actors are crazy. We know that. Mm -hmm. People can have double voices using their vocal cords. Also, as a side note, just because Dr. Modern exorcism expert Richard Gallagher went to Yale doesn't mean that he's the end-all be-all of confirming possession exists. Yeah, my dad went to Yale and I don't think they taught him any possession classes. I don't think he went to a single one. <laughs> he skipped them. He skipped him. He said, no thanks, not for me. Mm -mm. If I get possessed, I get possessed. Yeah, it's fine. Just do some research online. Yeah, call up some buff nuns. Yeah, call up the buff nuns. Find some buff nuns. They, wouldn't, they know what they're doing. <laughs> Emma Schmidt also could have been severely mentally ill, and those treating her simply exaggerated the events. 
In terms of the supernatural aspects, it's entirely possible for someone to contort their body and seem unnaturally strong during a psychotic episode. Paranoia can cause an aversion to holy relics, and people can easily pick up phrases in other languages. Also, Emma's parents were German immigrants, and she could have repeated Latin phrases she heard from the priests back to them. And it's also possible to guess secrets based on body language and using like general statements such as, did someone close to you die recently? And also all like Reisinger was old. So yeah, he probably knew someone who died recently, not to be dark. Seizures and vomiting are also human things. And if someone is malnourished, like Emma definitely was, their body will change. You can get a distended stomach, but that's not at all to say that anyone is doing anything on purpose or trying to trick people. They may truly believe that they're possessed and unconsciously align their symptoms with signs of possession. But I will admit it is strange when all of the symptoms come together. It's bonker Tony to see. I know I'm supposed to be the believer here, but possession just doesn't really do it for me. Mm -hmm. There's so many unexplained things about the human body. And as years go by and medicine gets better, we kind of learn more and more about what ails us. Yeah. And I'm also just not super religious. So for me, it's kind of like, mm. but like less religious based possession is something I'm more likely to get behind because... Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure there's other ways to torment priests other than making them do exorcisms, which just seem like a grueling process for everyone involved, demon included. Yeah. So like spirits hopping into bodies and making people do crazy things is so much more believable to me than just having like one demon try to inhabit one person forever. Doesn't seem like good payoff for the demon, honestly. Yeah, the only payoff I could imagine is like causing misery and stress, but like... Like really, I feel like the demons would need like an overarching plan of some sort if they're gonna do that. And it would make much more sense if spirits are real for spirits to possess people because they wanna be alive again. That makes sense. And then maybe the battle between the dead and the living minds, like two minds inhabiting a person's body makes you do some really crazy stuff. Again, assuming that spirits are real and they could possess people. Assuming. Assuming. Interestingly, there has recently been a rise in exorcism requests but experts believe that it's because of increased drug use and mental illness, as well as exposure to media displaying possession, like The Exorcist. However, Emma was from the early 1900s. She definitely did not see The Exorcist, at best she read about it in the Bible. Of all the reports I read, and I did read quite a few, her story is by far the most compelling, just due to the eyewitness accounts and the fact that the only debunking that I could do was with my own analysis. Although. I feel like my own analysis is pretty good. It's pretty good. And again, to be fair, just like those involved are biased to believe, I am biased not to believe. So we'll never truly know what happened in the convent during those three exorcisms, but I do really hope that I'm right because possession would be scary. And also, like, what was she doing in between sessions? Like, was she just normal or was she locked up in the church and, like, taking a fat snooze? Like, she was purring. She was in purring. her room purring. Yes, she was just purring. Purr. Which is <laughs> creepy. Yeah. I know. The image of her just sitting there and purring with, like, a wicked smile on her face. Spooky. Also, there have been a lot of reports of abuse surrounding exorcisms. Not only are adults subjected to them involuntarily sometimes, but children are too, resulting in deaths or horrible injuries. And like I've said before, in addition to physical injuries, they're also not getting the psychological care that they need. There's just a lot of fear based around the idea of demonic possession that can lead people to do unspeakable things to innocent victims. So like, let's just all agree to give more funding towards mental health. 
I agree. Give more money yeah. to mental health professionals. Honestly. Like, just, we need more research so that it's easier and more accessible for everyone who needs it. Yeah, and also more, like, well-known. Like, yeah. spread information, stay aware. But that's demonic possession, folks. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our spooky, spooky story. We have another promo this week. And, okay, listen. I am a proud, petty bitch, and I love true crime. So if you're like me, you will seriously love Seriously Sinister. A true petty crime podcast. Yeah. Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Trevin. We're the hosts of Seriously Sinister, a true petty crime podcast. The show that asks, is that a murder weapon in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? (laughs) We're bringing something new and different to the true crime genre. Each week, we both tell a true petty crime story with high drama and movie-like sound production. Also, get to know us with our weekly dreadful dilemmas and killer facts. Here's a sample of two of our true petty crime stories. Enjoy. As I lay on the floor crying, my vision started to become more clear and my perpetrator came into focus. A familiar Henri laugh emerged from the man as I recognized his smile. It was my husband. I quickly ripped open the paper and turned to the third page. Earlier in the week, another call had come in. This time a woman had answered the door and got an eye full of mystery fist. The call description. We hope you all enjoyed listening along and aren't too scared to subscribe to our show. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, petty bitches unite. Let's go. I'm in. Come together, it. petty bitches. I'm here for it. 100%. But for now, we're done. So we'll see you guys next time across the veil.